On this episode, guidebooks, boondocking, breakfast burritos, and the best hiking in NorCal. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Hey everybody, welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. On today's show we've got John Sores, who is a, a hiking guidebook author, uh, adventurer, boondocker, a Northern California dude who's uh, done a lot of great books for Mountaineers Press, all about hiking and, and day hiking and camping and all over the place. So, uh, and I've known him for a while. He's actually been on SoCal Hiker. We did a, like a, a, a Zoom thing with him last year or sometime during COVID. So that was a lot of fun. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking a little bit more with John. So uh, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from and uh, how you got into writing guidebooks even. Well, first, uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I grew up outside of Anderson, California, which is just south of Redding. So in the upper part of Northern California, the rural part of California. And from a very early age, I was really, really interested in the outdoors. And I was fortunate to live right next to some hills where I could get out and go hiking. I was also very lucky to have parents that gave me so much freedom to wander uh, in contrast to many parents today, like they want to know where you are every minute, every second. They want you to be watched and all that. My mom was like, get out of here. Don't come back till supper time. So I was very grateful for that. And that really helped instill just a, a sense of freedom and a sense to wander and to explore. So I started as a kid hiking in the hills outside of Anderson. My family was an outdoors family. My father really loved the outdoors, canoeing and camping and sailing and also hiking. And that got instilled in my siblings and me. So I started going backpacking in my mid-teens with my older brothers, Mark and Eric. We initially started going up into the Trinity Alps Wilderness which I'm hoping some of your viewers have heard of, but it's a really beautiful wilderness up in the far north of Northern California. A lot of granite, a lot of glacial lakes, and then also a lot of metamorphic rock. But that's really where I cut my teeth as a backpacker. And that's where I really got my love of wandering and wanting to spend a lot of time out in the wilderness you, you've been up there, right, Jason? Yeah, yeah. I did a trip there. Well, the first, 2020. So the first year of COVID, I did that. Is it Seven Lakes Loop? Is that right? What is, what is the name of the loop? I was just, funny enough, you say that. I was trying to find the, the loop I did. Um, but yeah, I did a, I did a, a weekend or a three-day over there. But the only it was kind of funny because you say not many people have heard of it. And it was 4th of July weekend, and it was right when COVID hit. So it was packed. There was like nowhere to camp. There was no, on any of those lakes. Um, and the lake I was at the first night, I, I was trying to look out to remember the name of it. I think it was Crown Lake, if that makes sense. 
Um, and, and it was, um, there was literally nowhere. And it was funny cause it was packed everywhere was packed, but then I, st- I did an extra day. So like I was on the Monday after the weekend and then I woke up and there was no one there. <laughs> I literally had the whole lake to myself and like went swimming and there was not another person. So <laughs> it was crazy to see how many people were there on the weekend and then, then completely empty. <laughs> Beautiful. It's interesting. It is stunningly beautiful. And up until recently, it didn't have that many people in it. Yeah. Yeah. However, um, one thing that happened just partly with the pandemic, but prior to that with Instagram and the Internet and things like that, more and more people have discovered the Trinity Alps. And it's a situation now where there are certain routes in the Trinity Alps that are just absolutely jammed. And I don't really go to those places anymore. Uh, they're, they're stunningly beautiful. And I'm glad that people are getting out there and enjoying nature and the beauty. But I like to go to places where I have more solitude. And that's part of what's happened with well, the internet and, and Instagram, it's, you have a few people with large Instagram followers and they go to, they, they go someplace and they post a few pictures and then their followers see that and they think, oh, I want to go there too. And this has happened a lot with uh, Bernie Falls. We, we were talking about Bernie Falls before the show. I was there last week. Bernie Falls has become just one of those go-to places in Northern California now for a lot of people. I'm, I'm a member of several hiking groups on Facebook, and I do recommend those hiking groups on Facebook. They can be quite useful for getting information and getting ideas and sharing and feeling connection. And I would just see lots and lots of people posting pictures. We went to Bernie Falls. We went to Bernie Falls. So, you know, Bernie Falls is one of those places that's been discovered, and it's certainly worthy of, of visiting. But... Uh, I, I posted on Facebook and I wrote a blog post about uh, hiking and all the hiking options uh, in Bernie Falls and around Bernie Falls on my website, northerncaliforniahikingtrails.com. But one of the people, well, two or three people left comments on my, my Facebook post saying, yeah, it's great and it's beautiful, but boy, it sure gets really crowded here now in the summertime and especially on weekends and holidays and things like that they've actually started limiting who can come in there yeah uh, I, th- I think permanent it's like permitting systems are kind of you know you can't always agree with that but i think they're needed in some of these places and four lakes yeah. loop i got the number of lakes wrong it's four lakes loop yeah that's um, what i thought it was yeah yeah, yeah. that's a <laughs> stunning one and really it's is. also a really popular one yeah uh, one thing about the four lakes loop in the trinity alps and many of the trinity alps lakes and hikes that you can do is you always have to pay a bit of a price to get into them because you usually have at least 2,000 feet of elevation gain of climbing. That keeps out the people that are just, you know, trying it for the first time or things like that. So there's a price to pay there. Uh, in contrast to some of the hikes, there's some hikes in the Sierra Nevada where you, you just start out at 7,000 feet. And yeah, 10,000 feet on the going. east. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, the Trinity Alps are magnificent. So that's really where I started doing a lot of my backpacking. And this was back, uh, you know, kind of way back in the day, sort of dating myself here. But 30 plus years ago, we would see next to no one up there. The most popular hike in the Trinity Alps right now, I would say, is likely the Canyon Creeks area and the Canyon Creek Lakes. I've been up there probably a dozen times in my life. The first 
seven or eight times I was up there, I might have seen four or five other people. Now there could be on a summer weekend, there might be 200 people in that drainage. And they've, they've had to put restrictions on campfires. You can't have campfires up at the lakes and things like that. Well, when I was up there, I mean, I guess there was some wood around, but you, you definitely with that number of people, there's no way you could or should have done campfires. You know, I think also like driving there, you drive through some burn areas. So you would hope that that's enough for people to see that and go, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I can go yeah. without the campfire, you know. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I've been advocating in my books recently to just not have a campfire. I, I've only had one campfire like the last 25 years, and that was when Stephanie and I were out doing dispersed camping 10 or 15 years ago. And she just said, oh, can we have a little camp, please? And so we had a small campfire, but I really did that because it was something that she she really, really wanted. But you know, I have a lot of reasons for not having campfires. And not starting a wildfire is the biggest one. Uh, even if you're following all the precautions and, oh, I cleared the space, oh, this, that, or the other, a wind gust could catch a spark and take it into some dry area. And it's just, it's not something that I'm, I'm willing to risk. And mm -hmm. another thing about wildfires is, you know, they're great. Having a wildfire in a sense is elemental because if you go back and look at how we evolved as human beings and, you know, small tribes and small groups, the wildfire was really important for cooking food, for cooking meat that you killed that day. And it was important as a social gathering place and creating cohesion and social connections and all those sorts of things. So there is something really um, just elemental and tribal about, oh, I want to have this fire. But I, I really worked on trying to get past that fire. And I just appreciate when I don't have a fire, much more in tune with my surroundings and the night around me. For example, you can just really see the beauty of the night sky and really see all the stars when you don't have that light there. So that's 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 something that uh, I've just really gotten away from, and I encourage people to to get away from it. Plus, you're obviously burning up local wood there. Yeah, I think it's funny because you know I most of my early years backpacking on most of the nights, if it was allowed, we wouldn't do the campfire, you know, if we were in the tree zone, you know, below the uh, timberline. But, but now I, I can't remember the last one I had in the backcountry. It's probably been 10 years, you know, the trips Jeff and I have done recently, we haven't had them, you know, um, uh, it's sad. I mean, there's part of you that misses it. There's like a sentimental thing to them, but again, it's like, well, if you even want beautiful places to backpack and hike in, then, then it, you're, you know, it's, it's something I think you have to kind of let go of. You know, yeah, and I think everything's so everything's so dry these days. It it's you know truly a risk. You know, so I think uh, foregoing the fire is fine. Yeah, of course. The other thing for me is that I'm older now and I I'm tired. You know, like the sun goes down, it, it's like backpackers midnight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you see three stars in the sky, and it's uh, time to to call it a night. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, nobody wants to wait up to actually have to put the fire out. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure it's yep, completely exactly. out. John, I have a question for you. So obviously as a guidebook, you're encouraging people to get to these beautiful places. You're giving them the tools to do so, which is awesome. Have you figured out a way to let people know, like, what are the more popular ones? What are kind of the off the beaten path ones? And sort of manage expectations for people like the Bernie Falls, right? When you go there now, there's going to be hundreds of people versus in the past where there may have only been a few. 
Well, I do. In the introduction to each hike, if there's something they really need to know to shape their trip and to decide whether it's right for them, I'll say that. I'll say, hey, this is a really, really popular trail, or this is a great hike to do when you want solitude. And that's something, you know, for me, solitude is just really really important to me. It's not that I'm not okay at times being around other people, but uh, there's a limit when you get to a certain point where there's so many people. An example, in 2019, Stephanie and I took uh, the maiden voyage for a dispersed camping hiking trip uh, through Southern California and Southern Utah in our van, which we call the Hotel Sedona because it's a Kia Sedona, it's a minivan, and it's our, it's both a hotel and a restaurant for us. So uh, it's our Hotel Sedona. Uh, we had a fantastic time. We went to Zion National Park, and I, I think we all know how crowded Zion has gotten in recent years. We were there probably around May 20th or so, it was midweek, and it happened to be when a major storm system was coming through, and on that day, there were huge thunderstorms all over, and it was just raining really, really hard, so we took the shuttle like you have to do now, and we decided that we wanted to go up to where you start the Angel's Landing Trail, and for those of you not familiar, Angel's Landing is that hike in Zion, where you maybe you climb up a thousand feet of elevation, but then from there you climb out really on this fin, this sort of knife edge fin out to this beautiful overlook. Uh, just as a bit of a side note, that hike is like a real thrill for many people, but uh, for people like me that have a little bit of an issue with like being right on the edges of cliffs and heights, uh, it's a real challenge. I did do it many, many years ago, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of over that. Uh, I'm kind of over that now. Uh, Jason, why don't you share, and then I'll finish. Yeah, well, I, I uh, funny enough, I'm the same way. Like I've done it once, and now I've hiked past it twice, and you know, gone up to the West Rim. But, but doing the, actually going out on the knife edge because it is a very narrow thing with a thousand feet or so on either side or more even I don't I don't remember the exact elevation I I did it once and that was enough and now I'm like okay I don't ever need to go out there again I, you know I can I feel fine hiking up to the to the rim without uh, you know risking my life on that very narrow uh, narrow thing but it is an experience and, well, and they have they have permits now for that too so they've restricted yep. the number of people. Yeah, yeah, they just started that, and, and they need to do that. As an example, we were hiking up in absolute drenching, pouring rain up uh, the trail, like Walter Zigzags. It's like there's a name for that trail. I, I don't quite remember the name of it right now. There were all these people that were coming down, and it was just this long stream of people coming down. Like every five seconds, there were more people going past you. And because it was wet and people were like trying to stay out of the rain, they weren't always paying a lot of attention to spacing on the trail, which is maybe four feet wide. But since we were going up, we were walking on the right side of the trail. So we had the drop off on our right. So not that it was really an issue, but it's like I have to pay attention to every time somebody comes by that they don't go oops and just bump me off this cliff here. And it's just an example of how crowded things have gotten in places. So I, there's a chance I'll go back to Zion someday, but 
for me, I feel like I've been there. I'm grateful that I got to go to a lot of these places before they got really, really, just really, really crowded. But a lot of them, they're just too, too crowded for me. We were, uh, oh, 12, 15 years ago, we were in the floor of Yosemite National Park in California, which is, of course, very, very busy. This was weekday after Labor Day, so early September, maybe September 7th or so. We did the hike up to Vernal Falls and Nevada Falls, and it was like being in a line. You were in a line of people walking up there. There was a line of people walking back. So I really go for places where there aren't people, and I'm, I'm fortunate where I live up here in Upper Northern California in Siskiyou County near Mount Shasta that there are a lot of places here where there's there's hiking trails that go to places that are not as objectively beautiful as say you know some of some of these men are like oh it's Yosemite is this and oh this place is that and it's just so stunning but it's really really beautiful to me and I feel a really strong connection to nature there. I was just going to say, you know, we talked a little bit about, or John, you mentioned a little bit about how social media has impacted specific areas, you know, like Bernie Falls, as an example, or uh, Horseshoe Bend in, in Page, Arizona, you know, where uh, it becomes popularized in Instagram and, and, and then everybody wants to go there and take that same photo, um, which is kind of, that's odd in itself, but, you know whatever you, I've been there. I can't really uh, judge. Um, I think one of the great things about guidebooks, like some of your guidebooks is that it's going to expose people to other trails, other places that are not overrun with people from social media. So, you know, maybe could you talk a little bit about that and, and how, you know, what, what the benefit of a trail guide is? Because I think so many people just use the, you know, Instagram or they use the internet to do their, you know, their searches for where they want to go. What are the benefits or what's the argument for, for looking at a guidebook instead? Well, there's lots of good reasons for using guidebooks. Uh, my guidebooks are all published by Mountaineers Books, which is one of the top publishers in the world of outdoor guidebooks. They've been doing it for 60 years. They've published over 800 titles. Uh, so I think they're fantastic. I think they're the best. There are other publishers out there that also put out really high quality guidebooks. And the advantage of having a guidebook is you have somebody that knows the area really well and knows how to research the hikes out there and then present them in a way that makes it easy for you to assess what you would be getting into with that hike, what you would, what you're going to see, what you're going to get, how hard is it going to be, uh, perhaps how crowded will it, will it be, how many people are going to be there. So it helps you. Uh, it really helps you make decisions because you can you can know that yes this is this is exactly how I drive to the trailhead and a key thing to note about hiking guidebooks uh, mine from Mountaineers Books and from the other major publishers out there is that the authors they guide you along the trail and they let you know 
like here's the beautiful things to see. Here's a good place to stop and camp. You'll want to look at this waterfall here. There's a beautiful meadow here. And here's the exact mileage where it's at. But they also do things to keep you on the trail. They can tell you, oh, watch out. The trail is kind of faint right here. And they're giving you exact mileages and things like that. Whereas if you're using all trails, for example, uh, which is useful. I, you know, I, I, there's times that I also look at all trails, but that is user generated content. And I see a lot of people on Facebook, they're saying, oh, you know, I'm going to go here and I'm looking at all trails, this and all trails that. Well, there's times that there's information on all trails that is either incorrect or it is definitely incomplete. So you can think going out there and doing this hike, but uh-oh, I just lost the trail or wow, what what's going on here? All trails isn't going to probably isn't going to have the information that you want there, whereas a guidebook does. And this the one quick thing about guidebooks is guidebooks are not up to the minute, up to date. And you have to be aware of that also. So that's why it's really important to have guidebooks. And I would recommend getting multiple guidebooks on places that you love from different publishers and authors. But it's also good to get some up-to-date research by calling the ranger station where you're going or whatever agency is in charge, perhaps looking at those uh, Facebook groups to see if there's some intel, and perhaps also looking at all trails, see what the last two or three people had to say about the condition of the trail or anything else. Yeah, we yeah we've 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 talked about all trails in the past and, and, and uh, you know the, the pros and cons of it. Um, I say think of it as like the political views of your your relatives and high school friends on Facebook. That's kind of like what all trails is. Some of it's good, some of it not so much. Um, <laughs> so how did you get started? Like as you know, from hiking with your older brothers, you know, on the Trinity Alps and backpacking with them. How did you how did you transition that into becoming a guidebook writer? Well, I studied science in college. I started out as a chemical engineering major, then wound up getting a, a bachelor's in biochemistry from UC Davis, uh, lived and traveled in Europe for two years, then actually went back to UC Davis and got a master's degree in political science, decided not to get a PhD for various reasons. I basically didn't want to devote my life to political science. I, I, I knew I didn't want to do it 60 hours a week for the rest of my life trying to be a professor or something like that. So I thought, all right, I have a master's degree in political science. I'm in my late 20s. What am I going to do with my life? During my 20s, I got more and more interested in writing and wanting to be a writer. And uh, so I started thinking about what are things that I could write. So I developed a, a dual track career. I started teaching at Shasta College and Butte College, which are in Redding and outside of Chico, respectively, in Northern California, started teaching political science courses, American government, international relations. And I started thinking, what can I do to write? I'd always loved hiking. And I thought, well, and I looked at some hiking guidebooks and I thought, I have a really organized mind. I'm really good with facts and details. I have a lot of experience in both the hard sciences and social scientists, I can, I can gather the facts, I can organize them, I can explain them. So I thought, why not write a hiking guide book? So for my very first book, there's a, a publisher called Wilderness Press that was in Berkeley, California. I think they have been bought up by a much larger publisher that I don't remember the name of right now, but all their books are still in existence. And 
The company had uh, books on the Trinity Alps, on Lassen Volcanic National Park, and on Mount Shasta. And these were, I was living in Reading at the time, and these was just really to the west, north, and east of where I live. So I thought, well, I'll pitch a book to Wilderness Press about hiking from just south of Mount Shasta all the way down to the Chico area, the Sacramento Valley, and the foothills of Sacramento Valley. So I pitched it. Uh, to Thomas Wynette, who was the editor-publisher back then. He wrote back and said no for some reason. I thought, oh, geez, what a bummer. Uh, but then I pitched to Mountaineers Books. They said yes. And so I wrote that first book. It was called Best Short Hikes in and Around the North Sacramento Valley. And that's what uh, really got me started. Shortly after that, I wrote the first edition of 100 Classic Hikes Northern California, with my older brother, Mark. And then, you know, over the years, the, well, probably two or three decades after that, I, I always kept those, those, those books. I would market them and things like that. But Mountaineers Books was great about marketing them and keeping them in print and in bookstores and outdoor stores. And starting around, I would say, 2016, Mountaineers got a hold of me and they said, well, we want to do a uh, a fourth edition of 100 Classic Hikes, Northern California. And we want you to write a new book in our series, our day hiking series. So that resulted a couple of years later in the fourth edition of 100 Classic Hikes, Northern California, and day hiking Mount Shasta, Lassen, and Trinity Alps regions, which really incorporated a, some of the hikes from the North Sacramento Valley book and then another book that I'd written. Uh, that book is really my home territory. It's like those are the hikes I've done 10 times, 20, 30 times in, in many cases. So that's really my home territory book. Then uh, a couple of years after that, I wrote Hike the Parks, Redwood National and State Parks, which is start of, part of a new series that Mountaineers Books is doing. And they've done... Oh, they've done Yosemite and they've done Zion and Bryce, and they're they're just really spreading out to all the major national parks in the country. But uh, I really enjoyed writing that book because I I lived over in Crescent City, and uh, owned a house south of Crescent City, uh, out in the kind of the hills with redwoods for about five years. So that was really a place I was totally familiar with and done all those hikes and really appreciated doing that that book. So. To me, writing the hiking guidebooks has always been something that has been a part of me and an important part of me. It was not a full-time job, though, for several years. When I first started, I was teaching college. Then I became a freelance writer, and I primarily wrote educational supplemental materials for college textbooks like uh, study questions, test questions. Most of you that have gone to college in the United States, at some point along the way, you answered some questions on a test that I wrote, and you can thank me for that. Um, I doubt it. I, I went to art school, so I doubt that I had any of your, your questions. Also, just well, a plug for Davis. I'm a Davisite. I was born and raised in Davis, so oh, fantastic. shout out. Yeah, plug to Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out to Davis. That is yeah. such a sweet Sweet, sweet yeah. town. I mean, if you if you want to go to a uh, you know pretty high quality school and still get to live in a town that's not huge and where people are friendly and you can ride your bike everywhere, yep. you know, Davis is a great, great place to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no worries. So I mostly supported myself as a, a writer for large textbook uh, publishing companies like Prentice Hall and. 
and McGraw-Hill and things like that in a variety of subjects. But I was always hiking a lot and always you know, writing blog posts for NorthernCaliforniaHikingTrails.com and keeping my books up to date and doing marketing activities. I, I'm looking at your site. There's, I already know I'm going to buy two of the ones you mentioned. I'm going to buy the Northern Cal- 100 Classic Hikes in Northern California and the, uh, the, the Day Hiking Mount Shasta Lassen. Just because I've sort of been exploring that area just in the last three, four years, I've sort of started, like I'd always been uh, done a lot up on the coast and the North you know, Lost Coast Trail and Redwood National Park in that area. But I'm now starting, again, I did my, that first trip in, in Trinity Alps and, and, you know, I did, I think I told you I'd done the waterfalls, Bernie and uh, McLeod and all of that. Uh, so, but I'm definitely kind of very, I really love it up there and I, I definitely want to explore some more and there is no better way than guidebooks. I love my old guidebooks. Yeah. I have a question about the dispersed camping guidebook. Um, so, cause you mentioned that you're in a minivan. So I'm assuming, is it four wheel drive or all wheel drive or no? Well, we're in a Kia Sedona minivan. Okay. Okay. So it's just like, think of it as a uh, Toyota Sienna. It's like the same size, shape, characteristics. So it is not all-wheel drive. It does have relatively decent clearance. And for doing dispersed camping boondocking, I'm happy to talk about that all you want. I love it. I do it all the time. And I wrote the book, Camp for Free, Dispersed Camping and Boondocking on America's Public Lands. So it's something I'm just incredibly passionate about. Uh, The vehicle that you have is you know, really important. You have to, your vehicle determines which roads you can get down basically and what range of sites that you have for, for doing dispersed camping. But we do pretty well in the, in the Kia Sedona. So it's, it's like small enough that we can get to a lot of places and it, it has reasonably like maybe eight to nine inches of clearance. And so, yeah, so, so, you know, we've been very, very happy with that. Do you do much dispersed camping? So a little bit, I do have a camper van that it's not all wheel drive and it doesn't have great clearance. It's a built on a, um, uh, I'm like, Ooh, Ram chassis. <laughs> I'm okay. Like I'm like, I can't even think of it right now. Um, but yeah, so I was curious because when you mentioned your minivan, I was like, hmm, that camp for free. Maybe there's some good tips in there on where to go with a vehicle that may not be so adventurous, right? Because everyone thinks of now as boondocking and uh, camping for free that you need this four-wheel drive sprinter, you know, all-wheel drive vehicle. And so I'm curious if your book sort of covers maybe vehicles that aren't quite so adventurous. Oh, absolutely. I have a whole chapter in there on the different types of vehicles and you know, the, the pluses and minuses of each one. So for me, the ideal for for boondocking dispersed camping would be a full-size van with all-wheel drive, four-wheel drive with really high clearance because it's just, it can get you just about anywhere. It's not so big that you can't get around corners. You're scraping against branches. Yet it's large enough that, you know, you got room in there to, to have all your stuff and be able to sleep and all those sorts of things. But you can, whatever vehicle you have, you can make it work. I, I say in the book that even if you have, well, for example, I started out doing dispersed camping with a 1989 two-wheel drive Nissan Sentra, which is just a little passenger sedan. 
So I'd have a tent in there and my sleeping bag, and you just drive on the many, many roads out there on the National Forest and BLM land that are suitable for your vehicle. And there's there's just lots and lots of them out there. You find a, a place where you can pitch your tent, and, and then you do it. I'm going to have to disagree with you. I, I don't think there's anywhere I want to take my BMW 3 Series. Like, <laughs> like no, no, yeah, there's there's some sensor on the bottom of that thing that's going to hit a rock. Yeah. And it's going to cost me $5,000 to repair. So, right. Well, you, know. you have a point there. You should probably not take that car off the pavement. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun to get to the place where you would normally turn off to do the, the dispersed camping. You know, right. you, you can definitely get there a lot faster and make those turns quick. But yeah, it's not yeah. a great, uh, not a great thing for, for camping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what you need to do, Jason, is you, you bring your bike. Yeah. You like bring a gravel bike. And then, you know, you, you park off the on the pavement and then ride your bike five miles off, you know. But, but as you know, I'm a roadie. Road. I'm a roadie in the bicycling world, too. So I, I don't have a gravel or oh, mountain bike. Man. So I'm just I'm, I guess I'm, I'm uh, I, it's foot travel or uh, or, you know, or, or nothing. So, John, I also noticed for Camp for Free, you mentioned it says that the book is updated for 2022. How often do you update your books and how often do you kind of come revisit and do you just revisit what you've already done or do you add new stuff? What does a revision look like for somebody who may have an older version and is looking at the new one? For me, with, with Camp for Free, if you bought an earlier edition of Camp for Free, you are absolutely fine. What I did with the updated for 2022 is I put extra emphasis. I, I felt I totally covered it adequately, but I put extra emphasis, including like in the first page or two uh, of the book about not starting wildfires, like don't have a campfire, make sure you don't keep your vehicle on roads. I mean, anything you do that can cause spark or fire, just be super, super careful with it. So that was important to do. And uh, really, and then I put a little bit more emphasis on environmental ethics and leave no trace. And again, that was that was covered quite well in the earlier editions, but I just wanted to, you know, wanted to get that in there. And then I also, another thing I put in the 2022 edition is that uh, certain, certain, you, you mostly do dispersed camping, boondocking in the United States on U.S. Forest Service land and BLM land. And it's just, it's all over the Western United States. And there's a lot of forests in the Midwest and in the East also where you can do it. Um, what's happening is some in some areas, some national forests especially, are at times putting limits or even closing off certain sections of forests to disperse camping or to anybody going in there. This happened as uh, uh, I'm sure there's listeners all over, but for listeners in the western United States, uh, we saw this. I saw this with uh, our forests up here in the Mount Shasta area that – Maybe I don't remember the exact date, but let's say you know, early August or so, they were closing off access to forests. You cannot drive down this road. You can't hike. You can't camp. You can't go there because they were so concerned about the wildfire danger. So I emphasize that people have to be aware that you can't always just assume it's always open for you to go out there and do that, there's times there's going to be restrictions. And I have a couple of chapters about how to research where you're going to go disperse camping. And I talk about the importance of contacting the agency ahead of time that's in charge of it, call them on the phone, 
look at their websites, do those things to make sure you're aware of what's open and what's not, and to get advice on the good places to go and where you can find sites and things like that. Um, and, and I guess just for people who haven't done this before or haven't done this kind of thing, what, what, are, what are your recommendations for people that want to get into this who haven't? I don't know if there's any of those people left after, you know, COVID hit. <laughs> it seems like everyone started doing it right around then. But if there are those people who are new to this, what would you recommend? How do you recommend they get into it? Well, Actually, um, maybe we should define what boondocking is first. Because some people may not know what boondocking or dispersed camping is. I know we just sort of jumped into talking about it. But John, okay. can you kind of... Why don't we define what boondocking and dispersed camping is? And then, Jason, to your point, I love yeah. it. How would somebody maybe do it for the first time? Okay, that's excellent. So, for starters, dispersed camping and boondocking are essentially the same thing. Boondocking is the term that RV people use. So, that's why I use both of them because many people, you say boondocking, oh, I know what that is. But other people say dispersed camping. So, I use both terms. So, it is essentially camping for free on public lands where it's legal to do it and it's not in a public campground you almost always don't have to pay money sometimes you might have to pay like a forest user fee some national forests say oh you have to have like a annual user fee or a weekly thing you got to get this pass just to be out there so if you have to do that you have to do that but it involves driving down roads, usually dirt roads, in beautiful natural areas, in forests, mountains, the desert, in the southwest, in Nevada and Arizona, and finding a beautiful spot beside a road where you can see the land's already cleared and you're not having to drive over anything, drive over grass or any plants. And you see, hey, here's a place where I can park my vehicle where it's reasonably level for me to sleep or there's a place for me to pitch my tent if that's what I'm doing is tent camping. And you can just stay out there and hike and observe nature and read and do whatever it is you want to do. I've actually frequently done it. I've actually worked. I take my laptop computer out there and I write books or I would work on those textbook supplement projects for those major textbook publishers. So that is what it is in a nutshell. Now, how do you get started? If you are absolutely brand spanking new to this or just only have moderate experience, I really do advise you to get my book, Camp for Free. It's uh, The print version is only available on Amazon. You can find it there just by typing in Camp for Free. Uh, and then the ebook version is sold just about anywhere you would buy ebooks. You will find it there. So it's, it, it's all over there. Um, you can also find out more about it by going to my website, dispersedcamping.net. That's dispersedcamping.net. You will uh, find information about the book there. And then I also have a checklist for what to take when you go dispersed camping. And also I have an extensive list of apps and websites and other resources that will help you to get started and do your research and, uh, and things of that nature. So to, to get started with it, you can, you can start really, really small. You can go very close to an area where you live. If you don't have all the equipment, you can borrow a tent, you can borrow a sleeping bag, and you can just go out in a nearby area where it's legal, do a little research first, but just go out there and just do it. Maybe just 10, 15, 20 miles from your home. Just do it for a night. See how you feel. See how you like it. 
Yeah, I feel like a lot of people sold all their positions and, and you know, whatever and bought the van and then a week later decided it wasn't for them. <laughs> I think there's a lot of well, those people. There are a lot of those people. And I, I follow the van life community and I actually uh, I did van life back before it was cool and back before it was a thing and back before many people even really knew about van life. I did van life from... Uh, 1999 to about 2001, I'd, I'd lived on the island of Kauai for uh, for three years, from 1996 to 1999, and totally magical place. If you haven't been to Kauai, I mean, it's by far and away my favorite of the Hawaiian Islands. I mean, it's just one of the most stunningly beautiful places in the world. Super grateful I got to live there, but I got island fever which is a term for when you live on a rock in the middle of the ocean <laughs> and it's only that rock that you can see period. And you want to have big extensive expanses of land around you. So that and the high cost of living in Kauai got me to think I need to move back to the Western United States. I bought a 1991 Ford Econoline van from a Findelmine who had actually done some basic modifications to it. He put in four windows with little slider screens and he'd put in a platform with some cabinets. So a cab, uh, platform that I could put a mattress on. So I shipped that van, my few meager possessions, and then my two golden retrievers, Hana and Molly. And we basically traveled around for a year plus all over the Western United States in that van. And that was back before it was real hard to get internet. You know, wireless wasn't a thing. You know, you had to literally plug in through like a, like a DSL cable. I don't know what the hell they called those cables back then, but you had to have this cable and you had to plug it in here, all that stuff. So, but it was really old school. There was no apps. There was no nothing. So anyway, bit of a digression there, but van life and people thinking, oh, I really want to do that. Oh, I'm going to go do that. There's a lot of stories of people like, I spent 80000 I spent $120,000 on this vehicle. I did it for three weeks, and then I realized that it wasn't for me. I will say, though, when I look at uh, there's different reasons why people don't like van, van life. One of them is solitude and lack of human connection. They don't get enough of it. And so that's a factor, no matter what, kind of when you're traveling and doing that sort of thing. But a lot of the van lifers, they either don't do dispersed camping or they don't do enough dispersed camping. So they figure, oh, I'm living in my van. I'm sleeping in Walmart parking lots. I'm going into neighborhoods in towns or cities all stealth and hoping no cops knock on the window in the night and there's noise and lights and things like that. I really, I've only a couple times in my life have I done that sort of thing. I make it a point of when I'm out doing big trips back in, when I was doing it in my van, 1999 to 2001, and then also now when I'm in my minivan, is I go, I'm, I go small town to small town. If I have to drive by a big town, I drive all the way past it and get to the beautiful untrammeled wilderness beyond where I can go out and do dispersed camping where it's just me and the night sky and the wilderness and the wildlife and no noise and no people. So we, we've talked about sort of like doing it in your own vehicle and that kind of thing. What, but say you are starting out or you want to do it, like what kind of vehicles should people search out? Like what are your recommendations for the best cars 
for uh, or vans or trucks or whatever for doing well, it? Well, that depends on who you are and what you want to do. Stephanie and I, we did a compromise in that I, I did have a 2001 Subaru Outback. I bought it new in 2001, and I did a lot of dispersed camping in that alone. And I would just sleep on the diagonal with the seats down in my Subaru Outback. And that was okay, not great. And when my two Goldens were alive, they had to be in there too. There would be one kind of on the diagonal. One would be up closer to my face and the other one would be down at my feet. And trust me, that was, you know, crowded. But, you know, that's what you do when you love your dogs. Uh, so there's different vehicles you can do it in. So when my Subaru Outback was dying and it was time to move on to another vehicle, Stephanie had been talking about, we want to do a lot more traveling. We want to do a lot more dispersed camping and exploring. What are we going to get? So we thought about getting a full size van. We thought about getting a sprinter van. We thought about all these things, but then we were also looking at the expense of it. Like we had, like we could have taken money out of accounts and spent forty thousand, eighty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, we could have done that, but we're not rich. So taking that money and putting it into that vehicle means that money is not in retirement accounts or it's not in the S&P 500 earning us money every year, even though it hasn't earned us any money the last few weeks. Um, but uh, so, you know, we looked at that and uh, we thought about it. And I also just needed a new vehicle for driving around, like just my vehicle. So we thought we're going to get a minivan. We're going to put a platform in it. And we're going to set it up so that we can put a nice cooler in there and our food bins and that we can put six other bins underneath there for storing all our stuff. And we went shopping for minivans. So that's what worked for us in our situation. We got a used minivan. And I wanted to get a Toyota Sienna, but they just weren't quite lining up. And then suddenly this Kia Sedona came up and it was low mileage at a really good price. And I got it and I've been, I've been very, very happy with it. So to your question, Jason, about what's the right vehicle, that really is going to vary by person. I will say that there are a number of companies out there that rent vans by, you know, I don't know, three days, a week, two weeks, three weeks. And that's a good way to figure out if this is for you. Uh, they're not cheap. They might charge you $100 a day or something to rent that van. But if you really want to see what's it like to be in a van where we sleep in the van, we have cooking supplies in the van, we can go do dispersed camping in National Forest and stuff like that, that'd be a good way to get started. Yeah, I did that myself. Uh, I did. I rented a van through Escape Camper Vans. Yep. Uh, when I did the uh, one year, I went out to Phoenix, Arizona. I flew into the airport there. I was able to get a a, a ride to the um, the location where they have these uh, camper vans, and they have folds down to like a platform bed and then there's like a kitchen out the back so you open up the back doors of the van and there's a full kitchen with you know a refrigerator a small refrigerator and a stove and all of that and uh, i used it when i was doing the arizona winter six pack of peaks challenge and so i basically would just camp drive to the next location be ready to you know hike in the morning you know either for sun i tried to do either sunrise or sunset um, and, uh, it was awesome. It was a great experience. So it's, and that's kind of a nice way 
yeah, it is a little more expensive maybe to rent something like that, but it was a nice way to like dip your toes in and see if that was something you'd like. And one of the things that I learned was like, um, uh, my my wife sometimes will do camping, car camping, or backpacking, and I was like, you know, would she like this? And I was thinking, I don't think she would. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a, before you you know like plunk down a bunch of cash for a, a, a vehicle, it's probably a good idea to you know go try some things out and see how the, how you uh, how you like it if you like that sort of style. As, as a tall person. Uh, the one time I did an RV, me and my friends rented one and went out to the the, the the Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. You know, it was great. It was a wonderful time. But I hit my head probably at least 10 times in that week that we had it. You know, I just, it's, you know, the, the size of that thing is not made for people my size. So I always like, I if I'm going to do the car camping or the dispersed camping, even I would probably be more comfortable in a tent. But it's good to figure that stuff out before you go and you make the investment, you know. <laughs> Well, that's true. And it's different strokes for different folks. Uh, what I really appreciate, I combine dispersed camping with hiking all the time. That's primarily what I do is I go out to places that I want to hike, usually in pretty remote areas. And I, I typically uh, will do a day hike in the afternoon. And then I come home, home, I use the word home, I come back to the van and I've got a stove, I've got a cooler, I've got all the food that I like. I have all my books I want to read, all of the clothes, and if there's a lot of bugs or the weather's really bad, it's really cold, I just sit in the van in the comfy seats in the front and read. Often Stephanie's with me and we'll be up there reading together. When it's time to go to bed, we we bring our pillows from home. So yeah, we each have our pillows, so it just that just that sense of comfort, like ah, I'm at home. We have this uh, memory foam pad on there; it's super comfy. I sleep great when I'm alone there. I sleep great when Stephanie's in there with me. For me, it's a really good combination of being able to be out in the wilderness and explore the woods and get to hike without having some of the discomforts of backpacking and we've all backpacked, you know, but uh, when you're limited to just what's on your pack, it's like, okay, maybe you bring one of those tiny little small folding chairs, but it ain't that comfortable. And you might wish you had an extra layer of clothing and suddenly the wind's blowing 30 miles an hour and your tent's going flap, 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 you know? So since we have an opportunity from literally the guy that wrote the book, it's kind of a nice transition, how you talk about driving to camp and dispersed, I mean, dispersed camping to hike. Um, why don't you tell us next time I go up to visit Jeff and Severia and Bend, you know, and I stop, you know, three quarters of the way up, what, what are some great hikes I can do in that Northern California area? What are your favorites? Well, I would talk about uh, primarily what you could do in the Mount Shasta area. There's a lot of just magnificent day hikes that you can do in Mount Shasta. I'm going to assume that it's, uh, it's summertime. Well, let me just, I'm just going to put one hike out there. If you're just driving through, like, oh, I'm driving up I-5. I'm driving from uh, San Francisco to Seattle to visit my aunt or whatever it is, and you want to stretch your legs. Well, for starters, my book, Day Hiking Mount Shasta, Last and Trinity Alps Regions, it's probably got at least a dozen hikes you can do that are just right near the freeway, just two or three minutes off the freeway. But the one I like the most is the Spring Hill Trail 
It starts on the northern part of the town of Mount Shasta. It's just right off the freeway. Also allows you to enjoy the town of Mount Shasta, which is a really cute, sweet town. It's got restaurants and mountaineering shops. Uh, Fifth Season is a great store there if you need to get any outdoor supplies. Um, but it's just right there on the north end of town by the city park. It's uh, about a mile, oh, about 1.3 miles up and seven or 800 feet of elevation gain. So you get a nice little workout. You're done up and down in like 45 minutes or an hour. And it's got beautiful views of Mount Shasta, Mount Eddy, all the mountains around here. So that's just an easy one if you're going up I-5. And you don't need to buy my book to do that. You can just Google it. I bet all trails will work fine for that one. So if you have a little bit more time, you want to do a good day hike, I would suggest driving up Everett Memorial Highway, which is starting uh, starting in the town of Mount Shasta. And there's a couple of different hikes that you could do there. You could hike up to Horse Camp. That's a great day hike. That is the most common way for people that are summiting Mount Shasta. They start on doing the trail up to Horse Camp. Then from there, they make their way up to the top of the mountain. There's a Sierra Club cabin there that's cool. You can go inside. There's spring water that you can drink there, just coming out, boost, just coming out of this pipe. So you can fill up your water bottle and it's absolutely delicious water. You can also hike to Great Butte on the also there on the slopes of Mount Shasta. That's a great day hike. You can also go out to Southgate Meadows, which is a little series of cascading waterfalls in a really sweet meadow. More adventurous trips you can do around Mount Shasta would be hiking along the Pacific Crest Trail to the Deadfall Lakes. And then from the Deadfall Lakes, taking a side trail that goes up to the summit of Mount Eddy. That's, I believe, about 9,000, a little over 9,000 feet high. Stunning views all the way around. Mount Shasta is just boom right there in front of you. You can look west and see all the peaks of the Trinity Alps. You can just see a long, long ways. And it has an amazing wildflower display in... Well, in early to mid-summer, it depends on when the snow melts. So I used to say early July, but it's probably going to be mid-June now that the, the wildflowers are just magnificent along the stretch of PCT, like the last half a mile before you get to the Deadfall Lakes Basin. So so those are some hikes around the Mount Shasta area that I really love. Hey, now, now I know what I'm going to do next time I go up to visit Jeff yeah, and Severia. <laughs> now, now all I need is a slowdown in work so I can actually do it. Yeah, when, when, are, you, when are you coming up? You got to make a trip up here. I know. I keep, I keep saying it's going to be this week, and then I keep getting... I keep getting work. <laughs> Unfortunately, when you're a freelancer, you, you just you, you feel you can't say no. You know, makes it makes it a little a little more difficult. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. So, John, I'm actually heading down towards you next weekend um, huh? to do Fantastic. a woman in whitewater trip, and I know we're going to be at Nordheimer Camp on the California Salmon River. And I, from what I hear, it's pretty remote in pretty northern California. <laughs> So I figured maybe you know where we're going. <laughs> well, I have been in that area before. It's been a while, but uh, the Salmon River is just a really beautiful, special spot. And it really is quite remote. And I, I think you guys are going to have a wonderful time. And I, I see that your, your, your group through Adventurous Women is meeting in Ashland, Oregon. That's where you're starting? We are. 
Yeah, I lived there. I lived there for nine years. Just a year ago, I moved from Ashland back to the Mount Shasta area. So uh, I hope you have a little bit of time okay. to explore Ashland and enjoy a bit of the the town life before you head out into the wilderness. Yeah, we're hoping to experience it a little bit on a Thursday and Friday. But ah, I feel like bouncing between Ashland and Mount Shasta, those are some pretty nice towns to, to have lived between. Yeah, they are. They are. And uh, Mount Shasta, I've actually lived in the town of Mount Shasta before. Now I live on the north side of Mount Shasta in kind of a semi-rural uh, semi area. But Mount Shasta is still our main our main town when we want, you know, culture. <laughs> Not that there's that much culture there, but there's enough culture. I mean, there's some great musicians and artists and, and things like that. It, it has like 3,500 people. Uh, but when you really They want, have one of my favorite coffee shops, too. Seven Sons Coffee Shop. Seven Sons is fantastic. I've been going to Seven Sons for, uh, I don't know, like 25 years. It used to be called Has Beans way back in the day. And then Seven Sons, Cute. they bought they bought Has Beans and, and changed them to Seven Sons. But that's a sweet place. I would recommend anybody going into Mount Shasta that Seven Sons is the place if you want an iconic coffee shop for Mount Shasta and you want to go where a lot of the locals are hanging out in all their varieties and flavors, definitely, definitely go to Seven Sons. It's a sweet spot. There's lots of outside. Yeah, and their breakfast burritos. Yes, they are yummy. I was going to say the breakfast burrito. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, it is. They have a combination of uh, uh, Mexican food that they serve there and then, you know, more standard sandwiches and salads and things like that. But I, I love sitting outside. I mean, you can sit inside, but if anybody is, uh, because of COVID concerns, it's like, ah, I want to sit outside. They've got lots of outside seating. <laughs> Highly recommended. And there's other good restaurants in town, too. There's good Thai food, and uh, there's a couple of, like, uh, brew pub places that are right on the main drag there, and a, a really good natural foods restaurant called Thrive. There's a little natural food store called Berryvale, which has just got just about anything you would want to get there. The fifth season has hiking guidebooks, but then everything you would ever need for outdoor hiking and skiing and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, three thumbs up for Mount Shasta. Great. And any social media or anything like that we can look out for? Uh, well, no, this has been uh, fantastic. I've, I've really enjoyed this. And uh, if people would like to get more information about Dispersed Camping and my book, Camp for Free, you can go to dispersedcamping.net. You can also find the book on Amazon by just typing in Camp for Free. It will show up. You can find the ebook version anywhere you buy ebooks. The print version is only on Amazon. And for my hiking guidebooks, they are available at just any place you would buy books and retail stores, REI, Barnes and Noble, and things like that. But you can find all the details of those guidebooks, uh, plus just um, hundreds of blog articles I've written over the years at northerncaliforniahikingtrails.com. I've also published a series of journals to help people record their adventures that they have in the outdoors. And uh, if people are interested in those, those are published only on Amazon, but you can go to getoutsidepress.com. That's getoutsidepress.com to find out uh, everything about those. I have five of those. I have for hiking, walking, staying in campgrounds, 
staying in RV parks, and then finally for boondocking. So if anybody's interested in that, you can check it out there. I have a Facebook page and uh, it's actually quite active. I'm, I'm on there just about every day. It's the Northern California Hiking Trails Facebook page. So if you go to if you go to Facebook and type in Northern California Hiking Trails, my page will pop right up. Great. I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, we'll get we'll get links to all of this in the show notes too. Yeah. Yep, all right. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, John. It's been it's been Yeah, John, a lot thank of fun. you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks to all of you. And uh, I'll, I'll let the whole world know what you guys are doing. This has been fantastic. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at adventure us women. That's adventure us women, Jeff at the SoCal hiker or me at the Muir project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On the next episode, we talk to runner Peter Mortimer. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.